appreciate your talk tonight. It's been really helpful. And the um, one thing that I hit on that I guess I'm trying to work on is the idea of that, that toolbox of things that will help you reduce the suffering in your own life. That it's like I'm trying to get a grip on that, on that one tool, that idea of choosing. And, you know, I hardly have an idea of been reading, but it's like I'm trying to get an idea of that you need to have some emotional detachment to step back from your own craving in order to be able to separate yourself from your suffering. It's it's something that I'm I'm happy to hear more about that. You know, it's good to hear from anybody that's got more information about how to do that. It's, you know, it's like the one thing that I really want to get a handle on. That's kind of where I'm at. Thanks. I remember Ajahn Sumedho talking about somebody who was incredibly angry with somebody and wanted to kill him. You know? Furious. Absolutely livid with fury. (coughs) But he didn't kill him. He said, that's metta. So we have an idealized sense of how things are supposed to be. And we're constantly putting ourselves into this idealized framework and never measuring up. But to be filled with that level of anger and fury and not act on it was an incredible act of metta. Yeah. So, in the last five or ten years, for me, I have worked more with my body. And that's helped a lot to learn how to relax more and how to understand more what's happening and how to feel a sense of um, right relationship with what's going on. Now, there's certain kinds of craving that goes very deep. And certainly the craving for intimacy or the craving for relationship is one of those things that goes very deep. And it cuts across all kinds of places. And part of what's needed is to understand the precept commitment that you have and what's appropriate in your situation. So, you know, right conduct for you would look different than right conduct for me, you know, in terms of where the edges and boundaries of activity of that is, yeah. And for me, you know, this whole inquiry has touched into huge layers of, of psychology, you know. The longing for physical intimacy with another has, has for me, also been very much connected to a lack of primary bonding with caretakers when I was a child. And so as an adult, that is our access mechanism for something that didn't get finished or healed as a child. And when I see that then it contextualizes some of what it is that I'm experiencing. It doesn't reduce it, it contextualizes it. 
And then if I'm skillful, I can bring to myself the kind of primary caring or caring that I didn't get from a primary caretaker without that having to rely on another person. So I look at the source and allow that to exist and respond to it compassionately rather than say, this is craving and it shouldn't be here and something's wrong. But, you know, we have these bodies and these bodies are designed to procreate and spring is a very challenging time. One of the monks, what did he say? There is nothing more painful for monastics than springtime. <laughs> You know, and it's just life, life force is coming through us, and this is natural. And so it's a question of, well, how are we responding to that, you know? And there's other kinds of craving. There's craving for power. There's craving for stability. There's craving for... There's all kinds of cravings. It's not like that's the only kind of craving. Yeah. But anyway, for me, this kind of territory has helped me work with stuff that arises <coughs> in a way that makes me feel more confident. But it's not about detaching myself in the way where I don't feel it. It's about getting perspective on it that allows me to handle it. Some things just take a lot of time. You know? Does anybody else have comments about all of that? You know, his initial question of how to work with craving? Things that you found successful or not? What I find is, um, it's sort of like, I'm thinking of the word inoculation. Like, um, uh, because I think that sometimes, like, our relationship with pleasure is that, um, you know, some people, like, go for it and just, like, Okay, stay, I'm going to sniff the cake and then in tomorrow I'll have a little bit tomorrow. So, you know, 
Yeah, well, I think a lot of what, for me, learning I've had to do is to is to increase my capacity with things. You know, increase my capacity for craving, increase my capacity for anger, increase my capacity for, um, you know, for many things. And and then and then as I'm able to increase my capacity for these things, then I'm doing less of the kind of indulging, avoiding, spacing out strategies when they come up. You know, I, it's familiar to me. You know, I know them, and it doesn't it doesn't freak me out so much. Yeah. Um, <coughs> as far as making choices uh, and making better choices, it's helpful for me keeping in mind that things that do arise in the past. And instead of making a choice because of how I feel at that particular moment, and I, for me, it would probably be aversion, I can't be with it at that moment. And so I would tend to make a choice that, in essence, would create more suffering immediately, if not shortly thereafter. Um, but perhaps just giving it a second to uh, see how long it will take to die is not what that is what I've heard. And finding out that after keeping that in mind and observing that, um, how the intervals of change have been shortening as far as um, the more attention you pay to what's going on and how it's changing, the, the longer... The, the shorter a time it will be before it is different and you are feeling different and able to make better choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have sometimes things come up and we just feel absolutely desperate, like I can't stand this for one second longer, you know. And then that gives rise to actions and oftentimes they're they're not thought through, they're not um, connected to our values. But the reality is is that we can survive it for one second longer. In fact, we can survive it for a lot longer than one second. And, you know, one of the weird things about living in a monastic life is, is that this is kind of rubbed into your nose regularly. You know, these kind of basic things that you think are absolutely intolerable, we are having to contend with often. And just recognizing that there's a way of, of learning how to relax around something which is profoundly unpleasant and conditions shift, and then when the conditions are a little bit more supportive, then maybe we can talk about it or negotiate a different thing happening, you know. But we we are our capacities are 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 very much different than what we think they are, you know. Often, you know, we're trained in this society to be tremendously impatient. And not very discerning, you know. And that does not support peace, you know. So we have to make choices that often take us into situations where doing stuff that's not the norm or socially acceptable or what everybody else around us is doing and find the strength to navigate that, you know. 
one of the things that I find hilarious but true is, is that, you know, I'm a nun, right? That's the deal. And I'm supposed to meditate. That's what I'm supposed to do. But, you know, I see some people's lives so full and so busy, and I feel guilty. (laughs) Somehow, if I was crazy busy like everybody else was, that would somehow make it easier. And it's like, where do these things come from? I don't know where they come from. But I feel them, and so because I feel them, I have to navigate them, you know? You know, I have to find a way to make the choices that I make and navigate the stuff that comes up around it. Now, when I'm living in a more remote area where I'm not rubbing up against people's lives and how unbelievably full they are, I have less um, opportunities to see the contrast. And because of that, I don't, I, ha- I don't, you know, in a monastery context or I'm on retreat context or in a remote context, that doesn't arise. But living in a city, it arises for me frequently, you know, of the juxtaposition of my lifestyle in contrast with the people who are around me. And, you know, as if there's a problem with that, that I have to do something. What I have to do is to feel the pain of what I feel in people being so busy and come to peace with that. That's what I need to do. And continue to check to see if my motivation and what I'm doing is to be able to support people coming into more ease or well-being or somehow some subtle, slight avoidance of that. You know? I think the word that um, I've just been holding on to is you said have the courage to choose the course of action and this idea of discernment and uh, I guess when I find myself in a position of saying you know I rarely say is this going to cause a continuation of suffering or cessation of suffering I just say I had a super long day and I would really enjoy a half hour of YouTube or something funny you know and then that half hour turns into two hours and I'm already sleep deprived and you know it just feels like that was probably not the cessation of suffering. When you said courage, I don't know something really resonated with that as far as at that moment when I could choose to turn the computer off or go to the bookmark YouTube, you know, to introduce the idea of courage it's, it's really empowering it, it, you know it just added a whole different element to that thing rather than deserving mm-hmm. I guess that's where I get caught I deserve I deserve some deserve or I deserve something and how that just is really not at all skillful you know it's, mm-hmm. it's coming from and some other place I could probably delve into and see what that I don't know. I don't know if this is a quick answer at all. But I, when you said that your experience of it taking years and years to distinguish between what was a trigger and what was actually the source of a suffering for you, can you say a little bit more about how you did that? Was it more just 
awareness just keep awareness over so many years just finally took time no I went into therapy (laughs) 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 because I was using a meditation model as you know what happens when we come into the Dhamma which happens for many of us is that the Dhamma teachings are so fabulous that they would think that that is everything that we need okay it's common, and the more enthusiastic you are about the Dhamma, the more you're convinced that that's all that is needed. But the reality is, is, is that developmentally, there's all kinds of things that need to be intact. And meditation is not at all equipped with those developmental tasks and sorting out the things that are not developmentally intact. Meditation is particularly skillful in bringing awareness to certain things and to being able to see the non-permanent nature of the construct of ourself. But it's not helpful in all of the developmental tasks that are needed in order to have a strong psychological sense of self. Okay? So what I was recognizing is, is, is that the meditation, the tools that I had, were not able to direct my attention to the to the places that had fractures or fissures or lacks or developmental weaknesses in my system, and that those places were the places where the suffering was originating from, and that I needed another kind of support to access that and learn how to work with it. And having a person, inviting a person into my personal interior space, that they could hold that mirror to allow the attention and awareness, which was you know, developed from the meditation, into touching the places that needed to be touched. Because I couldn't see it. It was constantly deflecting away from exactly where it needed to stay. And that's one of the reasons why having another person is really helpful. Because if, if, they're the right, if it's the right match, and if it's the right kind of style or system or thing that you can resonate with, ignorance does not see itself. That's one of its natures. And so when we're dealing with these kinds of sufferings which are crossing over developmental issues with with, um, transcendent issues, it's really hard to be able oneself to sit and see where the source is. Because the the, the habit tendency, the pattern, and the developmental uh, weakness... Is, is is deflecting attention exactly from where it needs to be. That's its nature. You know. So for me, I got there because of tracing the steps of the yeti. I couldn't see the yeti, but I could retrace the steps. So I would see the footprints of suffering, but I couldn't actually see the creature that was causing it. You know. And then somehow, I can't even remember what it was. There was just an insight. Oh, you know, I need to do this differently. I need to actually have some help with this because it's not I'm looping I'm not actually moving out of it yeah and I didn't you know I didn't have insight as to what the cause was when I decided to you know to do that I just had some sense that the loopings that I was doing was not furthering it wasn't actually moving me out of suffering. It was just, and the patterns were kept repeating. So even though the scenarios would change and the people would change and the time situations would change, it was very much the same thing. And they had very similar characteristics to them all the time. And I always would end up in this kind of collapsed place of feeling absolutely terrible and not understanding what had happened and how I got there. You know? And it was everybody else's fault. It was always everybody else's fault. 
It was so obvious how everybody else had got it all wrong. <laughs> you know, they misunderstood me. They didn't give me the right chance. I don't know what it was. It was endless, 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 endless. And then I, something shifted, and I said, well, "This is not the way. This is not the path." But the other thing that happened is, is that it wasn't long after I had that insight where I went to Australia. And when I was in Australia, I was living in the bush. And, you know, I'm a nature freak, so probably some of you know that by now. But in Australia, I had ne- I mean, I was born in L.A., you know, I was not born in nature. And and Australia, I was living in a national park in a tiny little kuti in the middle of this ravine, you know, surrounded by several thousand, 20,000 acres of wilderness, and there were four other national parks surrounding that. So there was like a million unbroken acres of, of national park that I was in the, kind of in the middle of, you know. And what happened for me there was I felt welcomed by the land. Now, I like the nature, and I like being outside, and I've always have done since I was little. But I never felt that before, that kind of welcome. And that welcome allowed a sense of safety. And that safety gave me courage that I didn't have before. So you have to have safety. You have to have safety in order to do this deep work. It's essential. And because of the safety, which I felt from the land... That gave me the capacity to open up and hold stuff that I had had no access to before. And then I began to put the pieces together, you know. What are you thinking? What's going on for you? Is it more questions about this? No. Okay. I was just wondering specifically what else besides the downline you gave a good example of And I also think that what's really helpful is body stuff, you know. Feldenkrais, Qigong, yoga, energy medicine. You know, these are our... our are systems that are helpful for us to get in touch with our own body. The somatic experiencing model of Peter Levine is built on on the felt sense of focusing. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Learning how to feel into the sense of things and the difference between, you know, knowing really what it is and just tuning into it and allowing it to shift and change. It's brilliant. We're at 9.20. How are you all doing? You up for more? Ready to go? Maybe time to go. Yeah. Yes, well, you know, I just feel a lot of gratitude for this group and the Against the Stream folks in general and um, just the tremendous amount of support and encouragement and love, really that I've received and felt. And, you know, I've traveled around the 
the world and also the country. And I was looking, hoping that I would be able to find a base with other nuns that I could spend time in and then journey from there. Um, and for a variety of reasons, one I couldn't go back to because of health reasons, and another is not a good match for me. You know, I came to the recognition that this is actually the place where I feel the most support. And so when I came back, you know, it was just a sense of really a homecoming. Really, uh, very lovely to be back. So, you know, as a nun with rules where I'm not supposed to handle food or money, you know, store food, cook, it means that daily upkeep is quite um, a project. You know, feeding the nun is a project. (laughs) And, you know, I because I'm in Colorado Springs and there's considerably less people there who are in the communities that are supporting me, you know, I've wanting to do it in a way that's sustainable rather than perfect. And so, you know, certainly I appreciate when people are making offerings and um, having food, you know, brought, that's wonderful. But I think in order for me to sustain this, it's going to need to be a little bit more flexible than the absolute letter of the law in terms of my rules. And I feel comfortable with that. It feels like that's right. I need a place to be, and this feels like it's the right place. So so the letter in the back is got also on it the lots of helping hands sign up stuff and a few other ways that people can help out. I think when there's more people helping, then there's less that each person has to do. makes it easier. But I just feel a lot of gratitude that the community has continued to be so supportive and really encouraging of me, even when I couldn't see clearly, you know, the things that they seem to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.